I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our podcast today. We are at an important point because we are now back to where we started three years ago in terms of our of our look at the Gospels. But we are going to go ahead and cover these again until we hit Advent, um, and then we'll take you on a new direction. So we're going to be looking again at Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. And uh, Alan, why don't you kind of put this into context for us. Yeah, happy happy 3 years and happy happy uh start of the 4th year of podcasting, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> so this week's gospel lesson moves into a new section of Matthew's gospel where he's addressing issues that illustrate the reversal of cult- cultural norms by the kingdom of God and the way that reversal of values is to be lived out in the community of faith. Um, he addresses the issue of marriage, he addresses the issue of of uh, wealth, he addresses. Um, we have the we have the the parable today, and and these are all um, in this section of Matthew's gospel framed as instruction to the disciples. Still, he's he's mm-hmm. he's not addressing the crowds at all in these in in this section. He's he's addressing the disciples. Alan, I think that's important uh, to point out that this is an address to the disciples. Yep. I think a lot of us jump in and assume it's to everybody, right. and uh, uh, that's an important distinction. Not at this sec, not in this section of, of Matthew. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now there is at least a thematic connection with the preceding context in Matthew 19, where a rich young man who supposes he has fulfilled all of God's requirements, or can mm-hmm. we say, with the language of Matthew, that he's fulfilled all righteousness, asks Jesus what he lacks. Very likely, I think, expecting to receive a commendation for his exemplary righteousness. Um, and is in Matthew's gospel, Jesus answers that he must go and sell all his possessions, and it sets the stage for the impossibility of entering the kingdom of God on human terms. It also sets the stage for Peter's question about the reward for the sacrifices they have made to follow Jesus. Mm-hmm. While Jesus promises them eternal life along with other blessings, the section concludes with what surely must have been one of Jesus' most definitive and challenging statements about the great reversal. Many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Mm-hmm, it's in Matthew mm-hmm. nineteen thirty, and we're going to hear that again at the end of our passage for today. Right. And I want to just point out, as I've mentioned before, while we might expect this saying it should be all over the Gospels because this seems to be so characteristic of Jesus, mm-hmm. it's only found in this context in Matthew's Gospel, and it's only found a few places in Mark and Luke as well. Mm-hmm. And that, that that seems to be a kind of a saying that we expect to be everywhere well it just seems to be a central uh, you know mm -hmm. a central declaration of jesus about the kingdom Mm -hmm. of god yeah so tell us about the parable today the workers in the vineyard yeah this parable is only found in matthew and the entire gospel tradition again we're dealing with matthew's Mm -hmm. um uh tradition, and it serves at the most basic level as an illustration of this principle, basically, that many who are first will be last and the last Mm -hmm. will be first. One of the challenges I think we face, though, right at the start is that there are several layers of meaning that we have to distinguish. In modern times, the church has read this parable as a statement about salvation as a reward without reference to merit on anyone's part. And that makes the parable into an allegory about how God relates Mm -hmm. to us in salvation. And this has been the predominant reading of the parable throughout history, likely starting with Matthew. Mm And while there's been a debate about who are the first and who are the last, there are various ideas. Well, the first may have been the Jews, and the last may have been the Christians, mm-hmm. or the first may have been the Jewish Christians, and the last may have been the Gentile Christians, etc., etc., etc. I think this reading has essentially defined our understanding of the parable, and I'm not sure we should assume that Jesus' original parable had the layers of meaning that have accrued to this text over the centuries. And so I think we want to try to go back and maybe see what Jesus' original parable might have been about. Yes, thank you. And, of course, the, it, uh, the reformers are taking on some of these traditional yeah, um, yeah. interpretations. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it all starts with Matthew. Yeah, <laughs> Matthew himself, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. So how do, 
so how does this um, Matthew begin this parable? Well, he starts with in a way that we uh, have come to expect. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. Now, we should note that the Greek verb hire is misthao. It's only found here in this parable in the New Testament. But it's a cognate for the noun misthos. And in the New Testament, misthos commonly refers to reward, but it also belongs to a word group that includes ideas of recompense or even punishment. So it's not hard to see why Matthew and then the church following him likely saw this as a parable about judgment, especially in the light of his interest in that theme, in that connection with the kingdom of God, as we've seen already. Now, a denarius was the usual wage for a day laborer, but it was barely enough to provide a subsistence living. Uh, Ulrich Lutz quotes uh, from a multi-volume work from the 1930s and 40s on uh, an economic survey of ancient Rome that mm. how, much a den- how much a denarius would buy. One denarius would buy 10 to 12 small flat loaves of bread. Um, uh, you know, so, so, but, and, and apparently, uh, Josephus commented that, that, uh, an average day laborer like this would earn 200 denarii a year, which means they only worked 200 days out of the year. Right. Right. So it was, and you know, interesting Calvin also talks about this as well, which I mm-hmm. thought was really interesting of Calvin. So this, um, how much this was definitely has come down through kind of the historical um, process. And uh, everyone agrees this is not a great amount of money. Yeah, sure. Now, although the ideas of a landowner with a vineyard was a familiar analogy for God's relationship with Israel in the Hebrew Bible and the Septuagint, I think we should refrain from assuming that's what's going on in Jesus' original parable. Matthew has definitely read it that way, but I think we Mm -hmm. um, we should refrain from that. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And and um, I think I'm curious to see when we preach it, if we have people that come in with that assumption. I'm sure we do. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, if the parable had stopped there with the landowner hiring laborers first thing in the morning, that would have been a familiar story. I'm sure it happened every day. You know, people, it was a mm-hmm. common enough scene. But Jesus' parable goes on to describe some unusual behavior on the part of this particular landowner. First, we should note that although he has a manager who shows up in verse 8, the landowner himself went to the marketplace to hire the workers, which was not necessarily common practice. And Matthew also tells us that he went out at nine and saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he hired them and says, I'll pay you whatever is right. And then he went out at noon and again at three and did the same thing. So, you know, a landowner hiring day laborers at dawn was commonplace. I mean, it, that still happens today. You, you, you see that happening, you know, various places today. My son's been doing that. <laughs> yeah, but but going back at 9 a.m. and noon and 3 p.m. Yeah. to hire additional workers wasn't common at all. And, um, you know, we might be tempted to think that the work was particularly pressing, and so that explains his behavior. But I think the point is precisely that his behavior is unexpected and uncommon. So it, it's, it's not about re- explaining it. It's about recognizing that this was, this was unusual behavior. I think also, you know, when you think about it, did these guys show up at 9, 9 a.m. expecting to get hired? I mean, because they should know that if you want the jobs, you got to be there first thing. Did they show right. up at noon expecting to get hired? Surely not. Did they show up at 3 p.m. expecting to get hired? So there's, a, there's an element of, of, of um, almost um, unexpected benefit that these, these, all of these people have. Everybody who's hired after the first ones, you know, are kind of the last ones <laughs> to some extent mm-hmm. because right. uh, who shows up at 9 a.m. even expect, and expects to get hired? You show up at the crack of dawn at these places, and right. that's, that's right. how it works. So the original contract with the first workers was a day's work for a day's wage. The only promise these later workers receive is, I will pay you whatever is right. Mm. And, the, and what is right here is the translation of dikaios, which introduces the issue of justice to this parable. Mm. 
And I think we should see this as a clue to at least part of the original t- intention of Jesus' parable. And we'll talk more about that later. For now, I think these later workers can only take the risk, basically, of relying on the landowner's sense of justice to ensure that they receive a fair wage. As Gene Boring observes, in reality, both groups depend on the trustworthiness of the landowner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so then what happens is even more shocking. It right? is. I mean, if it weren't surprising enough that he hires people at 3 p.m., right? He, he goes at 5 o'clock. Now, we should note that in the, in the original, in, in the Greek, it's the third hour, the sixth hour, the ninth hour, and the eleventh hour, yes, which is where yes. we get that phrase, the eleventh hour Yes. in, in English, yes. right? Which, you know, is, is so used today, and most people don't even know it's biblical, right? <laughs> right, right, right. So the day started at 6 a.m., and so then about the 11th hour would have been about 5 o'clock. And so he finds others standing there, and he asks them, why are you standing here idle all day? And they say, because no one has hired us. And, you know, the, the, it's almost <laughs> like, you know, this is, this is kind of obvious, right? I mean, obviously they haven't been hired, and obviously that's why they're standing around. But um, the fact that the landowner would hire laborers for only one hour raises all kinds of questions. Why weren't they hired earlier? Did they wait until late in the day to even show up at the marketplace for some (laughs) reason? Um, What could they possibly expect at that late hour? What What could possibly be right to pay them for their work? And so the question the landowner asks is rather obvious. You know, they say they were standing idle in the marketplace, just like the ones hired earlier, by the way, because no one had hired them. But if they had been in the marketplace earlier, wouldn't the landowner have hired them? So there are all kinds of questions raised by by this whole thing. So what do you think is the purpose of this? Well, I think in my view, there are several clues here that Jesus' original parable was as much about the justice of the socioeconomic situation where one single landowner had a large enough vineyard to employ all the day laborers in the village as it was about anything else. I think that's probably one of the most fundamental layers of meaning for Jesus. We see more clues in this direction when we come to the end of the story. Uh, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and then going to the first. And this not only alludes to the saying about the first being the last and the last being the first, which frames this story. It's, it's right before the story in Matthew 19.30, and it concludes the story in Matthew 20.16. But it also sets up the situation where the laborers hired first would see what those hired last mm. were being paid. Interesting. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's, it doesn't go by how we think. We think you get paid by the hours, so you get paid more if you work more hours, and here everyone's getting paid the same thing. Right, right. So if, what, do we, what do you make of that? I mean, if the behavior of this particular landowner has been surprising or even shocking up to this point, it goes beyond that now because those who were hired at the 11th hour at 5 o'clock received a denarius. They received the wage for working a whole day when they only worked the last hour. And so it seems logical when the laborers who were hired first, now note there's no mention of those who were hired at 9, 12, and 3 here. It's just the, those who were hired first. So it seems logical that those who were hired first assumed they would receive more, right? Oh, he's given them a denarius for, for one hour's work. Maybe we'll get two or three denarii, you know? And, and I would say, in fact, it's likely that the audience for Jesus' original parable probably would have identified with these first workers and agreed with their assumption. Well, if he pays people a denarius for working an hour, these other fellows who work the whole day, they ought to get more. But when they were paid only a denarius, Matthew, the, the parable says, they grumbled against the landowner saying, these last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. And so again, the underlying issue is one of justice and equity. Right. And, and whole... they feel like they've been treated unjustly. Right, right. So I, all of us already, you know, as we're starting to dig into this with a little bit different mindset, uh, my eyes are starting to see some different things about it. You know, why were these people hired last? What, you know, were they not as worthy of being worked? All these question marks come into my mind. So it's really... Well, it's and I mean, there's almost a pecking order in these places. Even today, you know, the ones who show up first are the ones who get the who get the best jobs. Right. And, 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 you know, the people who hire, the, the contractors who hire day laborers, they know the ones that they want to hire, right? Yeah, they do. Absolutely. And... and, and um, you know, the, 
someone who shows up at 9 a.m. or 12 p.m. or 3 p.m., you know, they, they have no real reason to hope that they're going to get a job, let alone 5 p.m., right? And so all of it is is amazing that, that you know, these, you know, it really is kind of a commentary on the state of unemployment in right. in Jewish Palestine in that day, in that day, you know, that, that um, the unemployment was a problem. But, but I would say that Jesus' original parable was first and foremost about the injustice that prevailed in Jewish society because the religious leaders had ignored the provisions regarding the equitable, equitable distribution of the land in the Torah. You know, yep, every yep. family was supposed to have their parcel of land, and the, the, you know, it was supposed to be divided fairly and equitably, right. and the, the principle behind that was that everyone would have a means of livelihood. No one would be left destitute. And even right. if they had to somehow sell their land for some reason, the law of Jubilee, the law of the Jubilee year in Leviticus 25 provided that every 50 years you shall return every one of you to your property. That's Leviticus 25, yep. 13. And there are many complications with this law in Leviticus 25, and it's not clear how this practice was to be maintained given the likely increase in population. But then the reality is we have no evidence that the year of Jubilee was oh, actually yes. practiced at all, mm -hmm. right? And so in this case, it was the greed for more wealth, sometimes on the part of the Jewish religious leaders themselves, that led to the land being concentrated in the hands of a few landowners and the majority of the population being reduced to the level of subsistence. And in a small village like this one, the laborers likely all knew each other. And it's telling that rather than celebrating the Lord of the Vineyard's generosity in giving these 11th hour workers a, a full day's wage so that they can very likely buy the food that they're going to take home to feed their families that night, uh, the injustice of the situation pitted the laborers against each other. And all of this was what the system of economic justice laid out in the Torah was meant to prevent. Mm -hmm. It was meant to assure economic justice and equity yeah. to the extent that that was possible. And, and I think part of what Jesus' original parable was a critique against the Jewish le religious yeah. leaders for the fact yeah. that they, they participated in this system. Right, not only did right. they not do anything about it to, to correct it or to change it, but they participated in this situation. Yeah. Oh, that's, as I said, it's just really, I feel like my mind is, eyes are just coming from a different perspective as you're mm -hmm. explaining this and yeah. i think it makes some sense within some of the other things that matthew's doing in his gospel so uh there was a guy who who wrote a book back in the 90s his name is robert kaler and his book was called jesus the prophet he was the one who pointed out this sort of socioeconomic edge to this particular parable and others others like it and you know there are some others who probably do that but yeah interesting yeah. okay so um you know you've talked about how matthew reframes this himself, maybe from Jesus. How does that happen? Well, and I have to say that at this point, there is some uncertainty about where Jesus' original parable ends and Matthew's editing begins. Most New Testament scholars agree that Matthew 20, 16, the first will be last and the last will be first, is from Matthew because it, it basically, with Matthew 19, 30, it frames this parable, right? Uh, verse 15 has some phrases and concepts that, that are clearly familiar to Matthew. And some, some think that the original parable ends with the reply of the Lord of the Vineyard in Matthew 20, 13. Mm -hmm. Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's injustice, literally. Right. It's injustice. I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? But I think 2014 follows fairly naturally. Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last to the, the same as I give to you. And again, all of this, I think, fits within the idea of the parables I've outlined it above. This particular landowner, although he benefits from the structural injustice of the Jewish society, is willing to give a day's wage to those who did not do a day's work. And so he dismisses the one who presumably is acting as a spokesperson for the group of the first workers mm -hmm. who were disgruntled. And this is one of the challenges we had before, is what's Jesus, what's Matthew, and how, mm -hmm. and how you reference that to your to your congregation, right? Right. right. Um, and so I'm trying to figure out here, you know, 
do you say Matthew has allegorized this with reference? I don't know. Well, whether you say it in a sermon or not, I think that's clearly what Matthew's done, and we've seen this. I mean, we've this is not this is not surprising, right? Matthew does this. Matthew takes mm-hmm. what what was probably a, a parable that that was that was about something maybe related but different, and he allegorizes it with reference to God and with reference to mm-hmm. salvation. We've seen this. I mean, Matthew does this. This is, it's not, it shouldn't be surprising. But I think we see this in Matthew twenty fifteen. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or are you mm-hmm. envious because I am generous? So, uh, you know, the idea of the freedom of the sovereign God to exercise his authority as he chooses was axiomatic for Judaism, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the right. language of are you envious because I'm generous is quite idiomatic and and recalls other phrases in Matthew's gospel. Literally, mm. it says, is your eye evil because I, I am good? That's what mm. the Greek literally says. Is your eye evil because I'm good? Mm-hmm. Now, again, your English translation might not bring this out, but the evil eye appeared in Matthew 6, 23. Uh, the window of the body is the eye. If your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But your, if your eye is evil, your whole body will be full of darkness. This is in the context of Jesus talking about the desire for wealth and or the envy of those who have it in Matthew mm-hmm. 6 in, in the Sermon on the Mount. So again, this is a this is a this is something that you know an evil eye is something that Matthew is is dealing with already, right? Also, because I am good, I am good recalls the phrase from the interaction with the rich and ruler in Matthew nineteen seventeen, where Jesus remind you know he comes and he says, "Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life?" And Jesus says, "Why do you call me good? There is only one who is good, that is God." Right, right. And so, you know, again, these these are some connections with Matthew's material that kind of, I think, shows Matthew's hand in this verse. That that maybe this verse also is is a result of Matthew's editing. Interesting. I think that connection is also strengthened when we realize that the objection of the first laborers was similar to the question Peter asked in Matthew 19, 27, about the fact that they'd made sacrifices to follow Jesus. Mm-hmm. So this whole idea of, you know, you've paid these last the same as those of us who've borne the burden of the day, it, it almost that's almost the, the, <laughs> the sense you get of what Peter is saying, you know, because Matt, D, Jesus, in response to the rich young ruler, um, says, you know, it's impossible for man to be saved, you know, to have eternal life mm-hmm. or to enter the kingdom of God. But, but with God, all things are possible. Right, and right. I think Peter misses that last part. And so he's like, well, wait, what about us? You know, we've made, we've sacrificed everything for you. And so it's, it's mm-hmm. almost like there, there's this sense in Peter's question that we deserve to get into the kingdom because of the sacrifices we made. We've right. earned it, right? right, right sort of right. like the first workers, right? We've borne the burden of the heat of the right. day. And so I think you know just in the, just in some of the wording and just in the fact of the, the the fact that Matthew has put this parable in connection with that whole situation with the rich young ruler and Peter's question about them about what's going to happen to them I think that kind of shows us gives us clues as to how Matthew is interpreting this parable and how he's sort of reinterpreting it with reference to God with reference to salvation with reference to mm-hmm. you know Reward is not earned, it's given, basically. <laughs> I have a question for you as you're going through this and my mind is, is going around. I know we only have this in Matthew. Do we have it in any of the Apocrypha? Do we nope. have it in any of the secular? Is there something similar like there, this? There is a similar parable, parable in um, uh, Judaism, in, in, the, in Rabbinic Judaism, um, um, probably from around the same time as Jesus, maybe a bit later. You know, it's there's it's it's always tricky dating rabbinic materials because the written sources are much later. Um, but uh, you know, there's a, there's a parable attributed to an early rabbi, and I forget his name, which says something similar to this. But the the point of this parable was that the ones who are hired last did more work than the ones who worked all day. So it 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 keeps it keeps oh. the whole justice and the equity thing intact. Oh, it reinforces yeah. the whole system of justice and equity. Whereas Jesus' parable kind of overturns all of that, right? Right. <laughs> the right. expectation, okay. the customary expectation. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. 
Um, and so tying it back to, you know, you, you began this talking about the rich Yurong ruler. Yeah. Um, it, it is, is it the same or is it different? Well, I think, I think for Matthew, that's the way he's reading this parable. This parable is not about making the mistake that the rich young ruler made, assuming that one's place in the kingdom is secured by one's own efforts. And again, I think there's almost an implication of that in Peter's question uh, in, in chapter 19. What is impossible for mortals is possible only for God. So, you know, entering the mm-hmm. kingdom, inheriting eternal life, salvation, that's only possible for God. It's not possible for anyone to do enough to merit that. Mm-hmm. I think for Matthew also the parable serves to illustrate the theme of the great reversal, which in Matthew's gospel occurs at the final judgment. And at that time, those who think they are righteous learn that they have failed to fulfill God's will. We saw this in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, um, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father. And many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not in your name do all these things? And, and basically he says, depart from me because I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. Right. I think we right. see a similar thing um, in, in, the parable of the, in the parable of the judgment of the sheep and the goats. Both the sheep and the goats are shocked by the verdict. The, you know, when Jesus says, you know, enter into... The kingdom that's been prepared to you for the for the for the sheep because I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You mm-hmm, gave me something right. to drink, etc. The sheep say, "Well, when did we see you?" They're they're surprised. They 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 don't. Right. They're they're not they're not tracking. Right. What's up with this? And he says, "You know, to the extent that you did it to the least of these, you did it to me." And then and then the goats. He says, "I was hungry and you didn't give me something to eat. I was thirsty. You didn't give me something to drink." And they said, "When did we do this?" You know. And mm-hmm. again, it's when you did it when you withheld it from the least of these, you withheld right, it from me. Right, and right, so right. there is this kind of great reversal in Matthew's theology about the judgment that, that we see, particularly in the, in the judgment of the sheep and goats. But we see it going on here as well. Now, I think we can only yeah, speculate yeah. about why Matthew felt the need to address this issue. Uh, but perhaps in Matthew's community, there was already a tension between those who, like Peter, may have thought they deserved more recognition yeah. for their service than the little ones among them. Now, remember, little mm-hmm. ones is a, is, a, is a term that Matthew uses, right? And you right. of little faith, right, is one of his terms for disciples. And so perhaps there was some tension between some who thought that they really deserved more reward for, because of their mm-hmm. greater sacrifice versus the little ones who, who may or may not have been able right. to, to do as much. But I think more than that, Matthew treats the parable as an allegory for God's goodness in extending grace and mercy, uh, especially to those who don't deserve it. You know, mm-hmm. the, 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 11th, the 11th hour work, actually, you know, we, we would say it this way. The 11th hour workers couldn't, had no reason to expect anything. Actually, the guys who were standing around at 9 a.m. and noon and 3 p.m., they also had no reason to expect that they would, they would get a job that day, right? They, I doubt that they came to the marketplace thinking, well, maybe somebody will come and hire us at this time of day. Mm-hmm. They were standing around idle just like the guys at the 11th hour and this landowner sends them to work and pays them a full day's wage, which Mm -hmm. gives them the opportunity to go home and feed their families that night. So, Mm -hmm. so you know, it's, it's about God's goodness and extending grace and mercy to those who don't, especially those who don't deserve it. Right. Right. And I, yeah, right. And I think that's how most people will hear it too. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't I don't think I don't think that's too far off from Jesus' original intention. I just I just think um, I, I don't like the fact that Matthew makes it an allegory for, for God. And I'm not so right. sure Jesus' intent it, was for I it agree. to be an allegory for God. I think in Jesus' story, he's saying it's a little bit like if even an unjust judge can give justice to a widow who who who, right. who cri- cries to him day and night, you know, won't the merciful and gracious God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob extend his mercy to you and his justice to you. And the idea is here is, is if even this rich landowner who has benefited from the injustice of the situation um, is willing to give a day's wage to people who don't work a day, don't give him a day's work, you know, mm-hmm. um, how much more will God be generous and, and good to those right. who don't deserve his mercy? So then so- Matthew completes the frame that started in Matthew 19.30 by citing, so the last will be first and the first will be last. 
Now, strictly speaking, the parable illustrates the story that the last will be like the first in that they receive the same reward or wage as the workers who were hired first. When we hear the last will be first and the first will be last, we assume, well, then the first are going to be last. That means they're going to lose their place. And it's important to note that in this parable, the, the first workers still get to keep their pay. Nobody takes their denarius away from them, unlike the parable of the talents, which we're going to come to right, shortly. Right. Yes, but right. uh, nobody, takes away, nobody takes away their denarius. They still get to keep their reward or their wage. It's the right. same Greek word, misthos. And so some question whether or not the last will be first and the first will be last is an adequate way to summarize this this parable right because mm-hmm. it's it's not about it's not really about um, the first and the last trading places and the, the those who were, who were like going to be excluded are now included and those who thought they were included are now excluded it's that the last get treated the same as the first mm-hmm. right 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 and everybody everybody wins in the end <laughs> yeah yeah so it is kind of an interesting tag on there. It doesn't necessarily fit. Right. Which, which again, most commentators would agree that Matthew um, put this put this together this way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So most commentators, most commentators also agree that in Matthew's gospel, this story functions as a warning against presumption of one's merit as deserving of reward. And, of course, more importantly, it's a story about grace undeserved and yet freely bestowed mm-hmm. by God. Uh, and right. so most most commentators take a fairly traditional approach to this, and Interesting. I, I, I'm surprised. Like I said, I'm surprised and a little bit disappointed that none of the ones I was working with um, uh, brought in this socioeconomic uh, dimension to I, it. I'm I, I am too actually because it's certainly been on my mind when I've read it. But um, I don't see it, how Jesus' audience could not have heard that in the in mm-hmm. the background of the parable that he told. I I agree. I agree. Well, that. It's very, very helpful. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Hi, friends. We're back, and we're going to let Christy talk to us about what the Reformers had to say. And I think, not surprisingly, we're going to find that Calvin has some really uh, interesting things to say that are, that are pretty um, ahead of his time. Parable in the commentaries asking, Why did Jesus tell it? Mm-hmm. And he notes that it's really a response to the verse that preceded it, the first shall be last. So he's taking this very face value as this is an example, an illustration of that, which yeah. we just kind of talked about, may not be Jesus's intent. Um, but beyond this, it certainly you know, was Matthew's intent, right? Right, exactly, exactly. It was so beyond this, uh, Calvin notes that this parable is about not giving up. Hmm. Now, just to be fair to, to Calvin, Calvin is not going to make the kind of distinction that Alan just did between Matthew and Jesus's voice. He yeah. doesn't have that. Yeah. But he is going to be critical about um, some of the assumptions of jumping to the idea that uh, that the, the landowner is, is, is God. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah. So, so, but be- before providing an is, is in-depth analysis, Calvin dispels a traditional reading of this parable. In that version, apparently, the first laborers were the Jews who had agreed to a contracted wage and were guaranteed entry into heaven if they fulfilled the law, and the later were the Gentiles. They were offered eternal life freely in Christ. And Alan alluded to some of this before. And I, I think that in- that goes back really early. I mean, I think it even does. back to Irenaeus, which is second century. Right. Which is interesting. So this had been probably pretty consistent through the church into the Reformation. Yeah. Yep. And um, and but but Calvin reminds us that that this is out of place. According to Calvin, the purpose is to show that the last received as much honor as the first. It is not about the amount of work, but that they are working for quote the advantage of their brethren. Mm. It is a reminder that God is free um, to give a reward. Yeah. So. Um, so then Calvin makes an, another interesting comment. In verse 20, 16, God is, quote, not comparing the Jews with the Gentiles, like in the older traditions, nor, quote, the reprobate with the elect. Really? I was, I was surprised, yeah. right? That's what I would have thought maybe he would have said. You'd think. Now, the first comment, the first comment 
and it's expected from what we hear before. But I think the second comment really challenges us. This is about being called and giving of what is yours toward the common good. Mm. It is a reminder that God is not bound to anybody, but can freely give as he sees fit. Other reformers agree that all labor that serves the glory of God is responding to God's call. Mm. A Lutheran theologian named Niels Hemmingsen, however, makes the point that those who labor in the vineyard without calling bring no fruit. Huh. Wow. So the I elect that was, it's the elect versus the reprobate all over again, right? It is, except that Calvin of all people says it's not about that. <laughs> right, right. So I thought that was interesting. So clearly and this Niels um Hemmingsen is, is um contemporary of Luther, so he's going to be he's going to be a, a theologian that, that predates Calvin. And so Calvin, I think, is going after that idea. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that language we tend to associate with Calvinism, but we're, we're seeing through Niels here, um, Hem- Hemmingson, that this is, uh, these attitudes of the reprobate are, are pre-exist Calvin. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just put into language. And Calvin says, no, 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 that's not what this is about. Well, so, I mean, I even going back to the third century, Tertullian said, outside the church, there is no salvation. So there was a exactly. strong, you know, insider-outsider uh, division for centuries. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you, yes. Whatever language you used for it. Ex- exa- exactly, whatever language you used for it. And that's yeah. what Calvin is actually saying. No, that's not mm. what this is about. So the reformers had some additional comments about the laboring. And I included this because this analysis that these folks gave made the parable more of an instructive about how to labor in effort and in attitude. Mm. In other words, this part of the analysis made the parable much more filled out than the kind of analysis that Calvin did. So in regards to attitude, first, in laboring, you should not be proud. Two, that your labor should not be about obtaining the reward. Third, that you don't despise those who work less than yourself. Fourth, that you are not angry with the master of the house. Mm. And then in regards to, um, uh, in in regards to, uh, that was attitude, I'm sorry. And then laboring itself. If you are brought into the vineyard, your job is to work um, and to actually work and not be slothful. The work should be from the heart for the good of the many. And it should be pure where energy is gained from the heart. Mm. Labor should be productive throughout the day. The labor should honor God. <laughs> so I don't want to say that it's about the quality of the labor, but it kind of reads that way. <laughs> well, I mean, um, you know, given the given the social and economic developments that were going on in the Reformation era, I can see this. I think, I think though, you know, it's a little bit of a stretch to say that. Um, um, these day laborers were working for the good of the many. I mean, they were basically working for the good of this one landowner. He was gonna, he was putting right. money in his pockets, basically. Right. Yeah. But you can see how this is there, and of course that. Yeah. That. 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 Well, there was a whole of ethic of of work that was developing at exa- that time. Exactly, and it fits exactly into that Christian work ethic. Yeah. That then becomes. Or at part least of they the make Protestant it. At least exactly. they make it fit into that. <laughs> Right. Yes. Um, in other words, work should be done because of faith and not as a means to gain grace. Mm-hmm. So now Luther, of course, emphasizes this parable as a reflection of how it will be in heaven, that the uh, last will be first and the first last. Luther, unlike some of the other reformers, claims that this parable should not be analyzed in detail, but rather for its whole impact. So here we have just above that this kind of a line by line detail and and Luther's like, no, it's a one piece. Um, and usually the reformers are trying to pull apart each verse. So mm-hmm. I thought that was interesting. Now for Luther, the householder wants to teach that goodness is higher than all human works. For Luther, the last workers were doing it not not for merit, but out of their hearts. Oh, really? <laughs> well, I'd see, yeah. I, I would look at the last workers completely opposite. You know, they had avoided the marketplace because... They didn't want to work that day, and exactly. they show up at a time when they think it's pretty safe that they're not going to have to work, and then this guy comes along, mm-hmm. this crazy guy comes along and sends them out to work for an hour, and they're like, oh, okay, <laughs> and yeah. they, wind up, they wind up getting something good out of it, and, and Luther, Luther wants, to, wants to say that it's almost like it's, it's a version of that Jewish rabbi 
who um, who you know made it to where the the labor of the of the later workers was better than the labor of the ones who worked mm -hmm. all day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So now the, that's just some of the commentary, but the parable actually had impact on the broader theology of the Reformation, of course, and that's mm -hmm. what we talked about several years ago, um, and that's works righteousness. And so I should spend a little bit of time talking about that, and particularly um, the institutes. And here, Calvin recognizes the free gift of sal that is salvation without works, but he does acknowledge that works come out of a knowledge that we are saved. They are a reflection of hope, or as he said, are the fruit of the promise. That was interesting. Yeah. Um, in this part of the Institutes, he introduces this parable actually in quite depth. And I will tell you, in most cases, parables are not heavily quoted in the Institutes or in um, or any of the Lutheran confessions. So that this comes out in the parables, uh, in the Institutes in such detail, really caught me a place huh, by surprise. That's interesting, yeah. Mm -hmm. So here, Calvin connects the householder to God, as he claims, um, he bases this interpretation of that of, Am of Ambrose. And he quotes him after this, quite a long quote. And then Calvin continues to explain that the grace is because of our adoption by God, and our reward is not based on works, but on God's good pleasure. All we have to do is have faith. So sounds like good, Calvin, uh, good, good reform theology. Yep. <laughs> so while Calvin does not go into the idea of faith here, I do think it is worth bringing up the question if faith itself is a work. In Calvin's theology, faith would um, it was something freely given, but something that we have to lean into. It is more as if we have the freedom to pull away from faith, God's calling. So it's an interesting tension between faith of the will and irresistible grace. And we've talked about this before because people tend to claim that Calvin is predeterministic. And yet throughout the Institutes, there's this tension between irresistible grace and the ability to resist it. Yeah. And I, th I think the resistance lies in God's giving us freedom to ignore the call on our lives. Mm -hmm. We have to turn to it or be turned to it. That's discipleship. But once we are, the grace is irresistible. Of course, why would one resist and one would, um, and why would one, um, sorry, and why would one resist? And Calvin, Calvin claims this is a part of his understanding of what he calls general and special calling. And those who are specially called are those whom the word dwells in their hearts. So in other words, if you're one of special calling, you're not going to be able to resist, I guess. Yeah. So it's, it's, and he doesn't go into the language of, um, elect here. He just talks about these different callings. So yeah. I thought that was interesting too. Well, and you know, I think I mentioned before that Ulrich Lutz in his commentary on Matthew does a, a, a lot with the history of interpretation. And um, he apparently um, is working, he did his work on his commentary in dialogue with a Catholic New Testament um, scholar who was a, a, like a dialogue partner for him. And um, so in, in, in Luther's commentary, it brings out this whole idea that, you know, there was this emphasis on, on salvation is by grace without merit. And yet within the Catholic Church, there was such a strong notion of merit that, mm -hmm. you know, that, yeah. that the Catholic theologians were pushed. Even Aquinas had to, had to sort of basically say something to the effect that, well, yeah, salvation is by grace, but once you get there, there are different levels of reward based on merit. Yeah. <laughs> so they can't, they can't get away from this, this idea of it's not fair for everybody to get the same thing. You know, you should, you should be rewarded based on the effort you put in. And um, um, so, yeah, that's, I think I hear some of the echoes of that, you know, I even in some of the reformers that, that they're, mm -hmm. still, they're still having a hard time getting away from that idea that, um, um, no, it's, everybody shouldn't get the same reward. There should be higher levels of reward for those who do more. <laughs> yeah, although um, I don't know. I don't... <sighs> I don't know that it's a. This is all about God's work for Calvin. I, I, mm -hmm. I, I'm reading sovereignty of God into what sure, Calvin's talking sure, about yeah. more than I'm about individual, um, individual actions. Yeah. So. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Thanks, Christy. All right. Thanks.
Hi, everybody. We're back. And uh, Alan and I started talking about this uh, because how how do we approach it for our congregations? And I felt like I kind of probably had to lean on some of the more traditional interpretations. Um, I'm just not sure that my congregation's quite ready for this complete rehearing of, in a social justice kind of theme. Um, and uh, I think this is one that people like and they like to feel like they understand it. Uh, so, and and I'm new in my position so that maybe I'd have a different response if I weren't new to this position. So it, I don't know, Alan, what do you think? Well, and you know, I, I don't think that the idea of, of generosity, grace, goodness, that's not foreign to Jesus' original parable. I mean, there there is this idea of generosity. This particular landowner is being incredibly generous with you know, not just the 11th hour workers, but also with the third hour workers and the sixth hour workers and the right. ninth hour workers, right. you know, he's, he's, he's giving them more than what they deserve. And, and mm -hmm. I don't think, I don't, I don't think it's wrong to see a reflection in Jesus, in a story that Jesus told of the emphasis on God's grace. I mean, because as um, Davies and Allison used the language that, uh, Jesus may have told this parable partly as an apology for his own ministry. In other words, as a defense of what he was doing, right? Because that's what mm -hmm. he was doing. He was, he was taking God's mercy and grace to the people whom the, the so-called righteous ones thought didn't deserve it. And, and mm -hmm. so, you know, I think we could see that part of, the, part of the point of Jesus' parable here is that it's not about what you deserve or don't deserve. It's, a, it's about just generosity and goodness on God's part. And so mm -hmm. I don't think that's far off. I don't think that's too far afield. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I could see it. I could see entering this from several different directions, right? There's a. It's very rich, and um, so that's that's a that's an. It, I'm not sure what angle I, I will want to take on it. Well, and I, t uh, I tell you, you know, I've been I've been at my church. I'm in my tenth year, starting my tenth year there, and um, I still have people who think of their place in heaven as being based on how good they are. <laughs> oh, yes, I agree. Right? And, and so I think, Absolutely. I mean, I think that is an issue. Uh, um, and I don't know if it's a uniquely American issue because of our individualistic culture or if it, it relates to the whole idea of competition and rewards and, and earning and all of that stuff in the, in the typical Protestant work ethic that underlies our culture. Um, but, but that's still a very real issue in, in, my, in, my, in my Presbyterian church. And um, mm -hmm. I, I agree. I think I think that's one angle that that we can we can approach that people would be able to hear. You know that, um, you know the, these guys who worked they they yeah they worked they bore the heat of the day they worked all day they thought they deserved more, and mm -hmm. in the end you know grace is not about deserve or not deserve it's about what's given. Right, and I like that. I like I, I like that message. I think that would. Go go over really well. Yeah. Know? Well, I mean, because I, I, think, I also think it's true. I mean, you know, well, when, of I, when I was in the oh, Baptist, of oh, when I'm I was not in the, it's not true. when I was in yeah. the Baptist world, um, you know, uh, preachers had a way of saying, "Oh, that'll preach." You know, if somebody came up with an idea, right. that'll preach. Well, you know, I I pushed my students to say, "Well, okay, maybe it'll preach," but the question really is, is it true? And is it true to what Jesus right, was right. saying? Oh, I agree. And I agree. I, I think it's both. I mean, I think it's something that people can hear, but I think it's also something that's true to Jesus' image of the kingdom. I mean, we we have in right. Matthew earlier, you know, and I keep quoting this, but in Matthew, you know, Jesus says, "God makes his." sun to shine on the good and the bad alike right. he makes us the rain on the just and the unjust alike and so you know this is and this is fundamental uh to he hebrew bible notion of who god is uh, right. you know the lord the lord gracious and compassionate slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness right i mean this is this right, is right. this is the essential definition of god's character uh that right. moses receives in the cleft of the rock right. and, and it echoes throughout the hebrew bible and, and, you know, you have it throughout the Psalms, you know, God's grace right. is on everyone, right. whether they deserve I, it or not. Trying, I'm going to jump in because I, I think you might have under, misunderstood me. I'm not trying to say this isn't, 
I'm trying to say this is preacher. This is so. This is true, and the others not. No, no, I didn't I'm think you would. Say, I didn't think I'm you trying did. to say. I don't think my congregation's ready to understand that Matthew right. might have a different voice than Jesus. Well, and, and I, I think that's fair. And I, I think you know, I think part of preaching is about what you reasonably think your congregation can hear. You know, right? And so, and and this has such a. I mean, this has so many layers of having mm-hmm. a lovely message. I mean, that's why I love parables, right? Because right. they. They could speak from so many different angles. I think that's, you know, obviously even Matthew has uh, a, a different interpretation and maybe Jesus had initially presented it. I yeah. think that's why Jesus talks in parables. Yeah. I mean, I don't see really very many other ways of teaching that can have those layers of depth. Yeah. And so I think it's presenting this in a way. I mean, I even liked my my reformer that talked about instructions for how to labor. I mean, what a, <laughs> I never would have thought about that, but what an interesting approach. You know, this is one of the things that we, Ulrich Lutz commented on this passage was about all the many ways that it has been read in the history of the church and Lutz may be a little more um open-minded than I am on this, he, he basically said, you know, all of them are legitimate readings of the parable. I don't know, I don't know that I would go with that. I, I don't really, I don't really care much for the whole idea that the Jews are the first workers and, and, the, and the Gentiles oh, are the last, you know, because so it, it leads, it tends to lead to the idea that the Jews are excluded and the Gentiles are saved, you know, right, I, right. I, I don't really care much for that, but, but I, I agree. I think that's the beauty and the, and part of the, um, just the power of parables like this is that they have, um, they have meaning that maybe Jesus didn't intend in the first place and that's okay well and i also love the parables because if you take this to a bible study i love the richness of the discussion Mm -hmm. as people are are drawn to something or drawn to something else and even if i I think there's they may each time they come to it they're going to come with something else new to it and they're going to remember it because parables are memorable yes they are so yeah mm -hmm. well and and i keep Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, in this one in particular, I can't, it makes me giggle because 11th hour has made its way into secular yeah. culture, right? Yeah. And people talk about, oh, the 11th hour workers. And it usually comes with kind of a, yeah, they're here. We're at is, the 11th hour. It's cool. an urgency. Yeah. It's an urgency. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I think that's kind of an interesting thing that has come out of this that has made its way into um, just as I said, secular culture beyond the church. And yeah. and people people use that, and they use it as those who come to work at the 11th hour. That's a good thing. Yeah, so, right. Interesting. Right. They came mm-hmm. just in the nick of time. Uh-huh, exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, for me, I, again, I think the I think the main focus that, that I, I'm going to take is this whole idea of, you know, grace isn't merited, it's not deserved, it's given. And nobody has to, nobody right. has to earn it, and that's the good news. Right. Well, I've been working on, and my approach will be that this is the month of peace. And so um, I've been talking about the peaceable kingdom. So oh, I'll yeah. pu- 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 pour this into how oh, this gosh, reflects this, the yeah, peaceable kingdom. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's 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 an interesting concept. Um, I, I'd be interested to, to hear how you approach that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks, Alan. Thank you. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.